I don't know. I feel like it's been like a weird news cycle, and I feel like this show is going to be chock full of complaints about Apple products. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. I, I don't know if it's complaints so much as uh, problems that yeah. could be solved and haven't been yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, well, let's start with a good one. Here's here, and and I, I I really like this piece because I felt like it's the sort of thing that people just don't bring up, um, and it's a piece you wrote an update of a two-year-old piece that you published last week on the basic gist of it is uh, how come all every other smartwatch other than Apple watch doesn't really have a smaller size that fits smaller wrists. Like Mm -hmm. for example, the wrists on an awful lot of women. And I, I I say that because I don't, I I think Apple very deliberately does not call the 42 millimeter, the men's watch and 38 millimeter, the women's watch because, um, it, it it just it, I don't I don't think it's like even like political correctness or something like that or or trying to There's just no point for it. Right. Because There's no reason to. There there are men who wear the 38 millimeter because they have smaller wrists and and there are surely women who wear the 42 millimeter because their wrists either their their wrists are bigger or they want the extra battery life or or whatever. Um but let's face it for most women the 38 millimeter is a more comfortable size yeah absolutely and you know i mean what is the market out there for other non-apple smartwatches and and watch like fitness bands for for those sizes Uh, and it's really non-existent that's the that's the frustrating thing is i actually i i'm not against android wear as a platform and as a as software because i think they're actually doing some really interesting things there um and even fitbit is doing some interesting things on the software side, uh, but there's just nothing. There, there's literally nothing. Um, the closest you can get, if you want a small "quote unquote" smartwatch as a woman, is to get one of the uh, big smartwatch manufacturers, big watch manufacturers, like connected fitness device. Like Fossil just released one of these that's 36 millimeters round, um, but it's it's literally it's a watch with a step tracker. Like it's, it's, it's a watch with a step tracker and it buzzes if you get a text message. It doesn't actually, it's not a smartwatch. I would not call that a smartwatch. I would call that a, an analog watch that occasionally talks to your phone. Does it have, uh, but everything, does it have a di- digital display or an analog display? No, it's an analog display. Huh. Well, I mean, I'm not laughing at it, but it is, I, you know, no. it's, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, it, it it wouldn't do me much good to just get a buzz knowing that I have a text because my phone is going to buzz in my pocket if I have a text. Exactly. And I I mean, the main reason, like if I was to break down the reasons why I wear a smartwatch as opposed to, and let's be honest, no watch. I haven't worn a watch in 12 years before I put the Apple watch back on, you know, on my wrist. I wear a smartwatch, A, because the time, is, it's it's a faster way to check the time than pulling out my phone. B, I want the health tracking and the real health tracking, not just step tracking. Step tracking is not useful to me, but heart rate tracking as a as an athlete and as somebody who's actively training right now is exceedingly helpful for me. Um, and the the third big one, honestly, is the the contextual notifications. Like I'm sure you do as well. You know, I. <laughs> I have a lot of different groups of people that I get notifications from and messages from, including people from my work and my family and f- 
friends and my roller derby, you know, compatriots and everything else. Um, and if I had notifications on for all of those for my phone, my phone basically buzzes once every 45 seconds. You know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, and what the Apple watch does that I really appreciate is that a, it'll only buzz me for the things I want it to buzz and B, if it buzzes me for something, you know, like I have Renee on my VIPs, right? So Renee is going to come through whether or not I have do not disturb on. Um, and if I look and it's like on the screen, it's like Renee is talking about the latest episode of Arrow. I know that I don't necessarily have to leave my dinner conversation right. and reply immediately to Renee about Arrow. However, if I check my watch and then it's like, uh, so Apple just bought Google, you know, right. <laughs> that's a, that's a little bit different. So the VIP feature, I, I don't know if I'm familiar with that. So that's, is that the same VIP feature as with um, mail alerts? Is it the same VIP yeah, well, it's, flag? Yeah, I guess it's, yeah, I guess it's VIP for messages. Um, it's not so, or, hold on. I'm, I'm definitely messing this up because I, VIP for messages doesn't actually exist. Right. But I, I have it set up. So, what, how do I, how do I have this set up? So that, now you've, now you've got me questioning myself. I'm like, did I just make up a feature? Um, no, I, I don't know. Now I'm, now I'm really confused. I'm looking I at think, do not disturb. Hold on a second. Do not disturb. Yeah. Do not just, oh, favorites. Yeah, that's favorites. It. That's what I'm thinking of. Right. Okay. <laughs> Allow phone calls from favorites. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's, that's what I'm thinking about. Right. Well, that makes sense though. But yeah, yeah. But it's still, I mean, then, and on that note, I would love for Apple to create a proper VIP feature for messages and other things because it, that would be very helpful but it's still yeah um i think i now i now i remember what i did okay so i have do not disturb i have like the snooze feature on a bunch of my iMessages so that the the new bubbles show up when people text me but i don't actually get like the banner notification mm. because you know, again, if I, I have a couple of different roller derby chats from people who I'm like skating with right now and Team Canada and everything else. And a lot of those just uh, I don't want to say that they're full of nonsense because it's not. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's we have fun and we we chat about, you know, uh, sometimes inane things, sometimes important things. But it's not something that I need to get buzzed at about every 45 seconds. Right, so I a, have a lot of those on a yeah. group chat can really get active. I mean, it's, it's yes. just the nature of whether it's, you know, in Slack or an iMessage or whatever. Uh, and, you know, it, it's an interesting, I, I don't know, it comes, it, the rise of group chats is, is an interesting thing because it's different than like mailing lists when mail was more, you know, the only real way for a group to communicate. Uh, because it's chatty, right? It's little one sentence things and emoji and real time, right? yeah. And it's you so know, many stickers. And the weird thing about it is, like, you know, I mean, just I mean, this is really, really going to date me, but like to go all the way back to like the BBS, <laughs> Try me. to go back to the BBS era, <laughs> you know, it, it, that that's what you know. Group chat is exactly what was going on in in like a forum, uh, or you know, like. Uh, IRC, but, yeah. but IRC is in BBS chats and things like that are things that like you're either in it right now with your, you know, signed in and looking at it and active, or if you're doing something else, you know, if you're having it just happens without you, right. It just happens without you. Whereas the difference with group chat today is your phone can still be going off, you know, bing, 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 bing. <laughs> 
You're always you're always on. You're always paying attention, even if you don't want to be. Right. Uh, so managing that is is you know, I don't know. It's, it's a challenge. It is, and I don't think that we've quite licked it yet. You know, I feel like we it it should be easier. I know Slack has a feature where you can say like snooze for X, but I feel like it's mm-hmm. too hard to get to. Like you have to like oh you have to open the app. You have to go over to the sidebar. Like, I feel like there ought to be a way that you could do that right from notification center. Yeah, exactly. Just have the button that's just like snooze for an hour. Right. Slide oh, it. Oh, man. I would love that for messages. Yeah. Like, slide as, to snooze. <laughs> well, just slide it over. And one of those buttons there it would be, you know, mm-hmm. snooze. And, you know, maybe you could like um, 3D touch on the snooze button and get a list of how long to snooze it for. But then you you know yeah. you're like one slide one hard press and a and then a, one more tap and you're done. Honestly, anything that allows me to not open an app when I don't want to be in that app is a good feature. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, uh, anyway, smartwatch sizes. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but going back to that, right? Um, I, I also think it's true. I, I I think that even the Apple Watch 42 millimeter is surprisingly small maybe not surprisingly small but but competitively it, it's smaller than a lot of the other smartwatches that are out there without question i mean if you look at uh, in that article that you referenced i have a chart of i went and talked to the android central guys and i was like all right what are the biggest like android wear and other associated smartwatches that are on the market today um, and by big, I mean like well sold, not physically big, but it turns out that the same thing uh, because literally no Android smartwatch is smaller than 42 millimeter. And in fact, some are much bigger than 42 millimeter. Uh, and that's the that's the thing is uh, in part that's because of the round wrists, uh, the round face that they've decided to go with. If you want to do a round face, you have to have it be a certain diameter uh, just a to make the the interface readable and b quite honestly because you want to make sure that um, that you can fit all the components in there. Um, so by nature, you know, if you have something that's thirty, you know, that's forty two millimeters tall, uh, the width is also going to be forty two millimeters. Right. And forty two millimeters tall and forty two millimeters wide is a or it's a it's a very different look than 42 millimeters tall and i forget what the apple watch is off the top of my head but i think it's like 33 millimeters wide something like that i'll have to look at it yeah but but it's still it's it yeah you're you're right it's significantly smaller yeah as i I, as somebody who's a a minor league very you know i don't have the addiction too bad but a watch guy uh uh, there's a rough for traditional watches. You know, we're talking mechanical round watches. We're we're most around uh, as a rough measure. Forty millimeters for a round watch is is, and that's measured like side to side. Is about I think it's fair to say that's quote unquote normal and something mm-hmm. for a men's watch. And so, like a thirty six millimeter men's watch would be considered small. Um, which is how a lot of watches, like vintage watches from 30, 40, 50 years ago, that, you know, watches actually have gotten larger just as a measure of style. You know, it's obvious, you know. Yeah. Uh, it is a stylish uh, thing. Yeah. People like larger, slightly larger watches, especially when well, they're round. I, th- there was a fad, and I think, I thankfully, because I did not like this fad at all, but I would say in the last 10 years, um, there was a fad in men's 
mechanical watches to get really big and chunky, like 45, 46 millimeter watches, um, mm. at, which I just found ugh, distasteful. Um, and th- yeah. thankfully, that seems to be coming to an end. But that's just, you know, a rough measure. But the other thing that you learn when you're you get into watches and, and it, it's hard to just take the size and, you know, the uh, and look at the marketing pictures and and truly judge whether it's going to look good or bad on your wrist. Like you really do. Yeah. You really do have to try it on. And sometimes there's a watch that you would think, oh, that'll, that's not too big for me. That'd be fine. And you go try it on and it like either it like sticks up too far or it, it it's just hard to say and then sometimes there's a watch where you think ah 42 millimeters that's that's too big for me and you try it on and it just works it's like wow that's not too big yeah. at all um but p- one of the factors that plays into it are the lugs meaning uh, on yeah. most traditional mm-hmm. watches you know the strap attaches to these lugs that stick up above and below the case. And one of the reasons I think the Apple Watch fits so well on so many people and is so small is that the clever way that the straps attach don't have lugs at all. Like, so there is no, there is no like lug penalty, you know, like the actual 42 millimeters or 38 millimeters, you know, top to bottom of the watch is literally all there is. And the strap just starts immediately. Like so, I yeah, that's I, I think the Apple Watch gains a couple of millimeters in size because of that. Absolutely, um, and I'm I'm thinking about like I'm wearing the um, the Sport Loop right now, and that's that and the Milanese are really the only ones, and I guess the Leather Loop are the only ones that even have like an an inkling of a lug because they have that fold over strap. But you're absolutely right; it just kind of starts right there. Um, and in comparison, actually, it's just funny when I was looking at all of the different. Uh, the different smartwatches. Um, of course, Fitbit just recently came out with the Ionic. Um, and I, I don't know if you saw that. their measurements on their site are so horribly misleading uh, because they only show the measurements. Uh, they only show the screen size measurement. Mm. So they're like, look, our screen size is only 21 millimeters long. Um and uh, what they're doing is conveniently leaving out the giant lug attachments that connect the band, uh, which make the height uh, 44.45 millimeters. So it's like it's it's stuff like that where, you know, I, I don't want to say that everybody's doing misleading advertising here, but but it's it's really bothersome to me to to see how smartwatch manufacturers are are. At this point, they're like, we can't make it smaller for whatever for whatever reason. We're, we've decided not to make this smaller, but we're still going to pretend that we can compete with the Apple Watch on size. Uh, so look at how look at how thin and svelte our uh, our screen is. Never mind the twenty millimeters of lugs that we've attached to it. Yeah, it's it, and I'm rooting for Fitbit because I me too. I like the idea, you know, and it's the same way, same reason. I really was rooting, you, you know. 10 years ago for Palm, for the, the web OS, their, you know, their smartphones to take off. Uh, you know, I, I like the idea of upstart companies and I, uh, I, I don't think it's healthy to have a world where only companies the size of Apple and Google can get a, a platform off the ground. Like, yeah, but I understand why that's, you know, it, it's, that's why that's the most likely scenario. Um, but you're right. I think for a watch, you can, you know, like we, so we sell laptops by edge to edge or diagonal screen size, right? Like you don't, 
mm-hmm. when you buy a new MacBook, you don't buy it based on the. They'll give you the measurements on the tech specs page, but when they say it's a 13 inch MacBook Pro, that means that the screen goes 13 inches diagonal to diagonal, and mm-hmm. that's fine for a laptop that gives you a sense of what you know. It, it's a fair measurement of how big a laptop is. Um, so, like with the 11 inch MacBook Air. Uh, you know, I, I I don't think anybody who has a sense, you know, whose baseline is 13 inches, the 11 inch MacBook Air was like, yeah, this is exactly how much smaller it is. Isn't this thing adorable? It's tiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think with a watch that's <laughs> that's just not. <laughs> it doesn't quite work. It well, yeah. again, it comes back to bezels right. too, right? Where right. laptops at this point, their bezels are almost non-existent. Like they have some, but it's you know when you say it's a thirteen-inch screen, it's really like a thirteen point like two five-inch right. casing. Um, it's not really that much bigger. Um, but then when you look at a watch, you know the the difference between the diameter of the digital display and the diameter of the watch are going to be vastly different in some cases. And then again, I go back to the Ionic which actually has a a widescreen display. So despite the fact that it's showing, it's like, oh, our display is 21 millimeters tall um, and 35.99 millimeters uh, diagonally, but the actual picture is cut off in black bars. So it's even thinner than that. And they don't say, oh, this is how big our our display is. Um, and it's the same thing with some of the round watches, too. It's like you you don't really know how big the, like, is there going to be a bezel? Is it going to be edge to edge? Like, some of them are edge to edge, but I don't know. It's just, like, when I look at the, when I look at the chart that I put up together, or to put up, it's, it's kind of astounding. Like, if you compare it against the, the 42 millimeter Apple Watch, you know, the lightest 42 millimeter Apple Watch, the Series 1 is 30 grams, and that's about on par with like the Ionic and the Gear S2, and um, the rest of them are much heavier. Uh, and then the, like the sizing, 42 millimeters, uh, the Gear S2 is 39 millimeters tall, uh, but the rest of them are around 42 to 48, basically. But then you go to width, and it's like 36 millimeters for the 40, for the 42 millimeters. And there's no one that even touches that 36 millimeters wide. The closest is the Ionic at 38. And then it jumps up to the 43.6, which is the gear, the, the gear S2. Um, and that's just the 42 millimeter, you know, and you jump down to the 38 millimeter. The 38 millimeter is only 33 millimeters wide. Um, so literally the next largest smartwatch after the 38 millimeter is the 42 millimeter there's no android wear there's no third-party smartwatch manufacturer that even comes close to that width on a on a smartwatch um let alone depth the 38 millimeter series one is only 10.5 millimeters uh thin i guess thick uh and the next the next highest is the style the lg watch style which was 10.8 millimeters but that thing was like a behemoth at 42 by 45 millimeters. Like it was a, it was a giant black hole on your wrist and almost 50 grams heavy. It's just, and that was, that was the mar- the watch that was supposedly going to take over the women's market. Right. Like the, the, the LG watch style at the beginning of the year was like, oh, this is the Android watch for women. This is the Android watch that women have been waiting for. Uh, and literally six, seven months later, it's been discounted so heavily that like you can buy it for a hundred bucks, yeah, a $250 and, watch. And, and uh, you know, again, 
I, they don't, I don't know that they ever called it a woman's watch, but it, just from the color choices they used alone, they were in a palette that was, I think, a little bit feminine. It was clearly yeah. meant to well, be. Well, they only had they only had women, uh, female models wearing right. it, right. too. So it's, which know, is another, yeah. I, I would say even more so than an Apple Watch. Although there are obviously some varieties of Apple Watch, you know, that are clearly meant for women, you know, like the, the, mm-hmm. the Hermes models, you know, and, and some yeah, of the... Yeah, the double tour, absolutely. And some of the band choices, even from Apple, some of the sort of, uh, I forget Apple's fancy color names, but the, the ones that are sort of yeah. taupe. Pink sand. Right, pink sand and those things. <laughs> um yeah, but I think it's way too big. It's just ridiculously big. And, I, you know, why? Why is that? And I honestly think – I think the thing that people don't want to – some people don't want to just talk about, like the elephant is the in the room, I think, is that the obvious answer is that Apple is so far ahead at being able – In silicon. Yeah, at, that, that nobody else can touch them. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that from the point of view of – um, of, of, you know, it, it gets into the whole journalistic argument of, are, are you pro Apple? Are you in the bag for Apple? Are you biased against Apple? That sort of thing. Uh, that there are certain, a lot of publications that want to try to appeal, appear above the board and sort of even handed and, and not in favor of, of any particular company. Uh, and therefore don't want to, to touch that because it sounds some people are going to hear that and and say well you're just in the bag for apple because there's yeah but i think that that's the obvious it's it's not being biased in favor of apple it's stating it's the occam's razor explanation uh yeah it's a literal fact there is no you know there is no smartwatch out there that even remotely comes close to this size and the silica like the the technical challenges for making this happen are immense. Like right. it, it, the the fact that I mean, and this is the thing that really won me over, right? Because when the thirty eight millimeter first came out in twenty fifteen, it was definitely the subpar of the two watches. Like it didn't get a full day worth of battery life, and we kind of just dealt with it because we understood that hey, we're getting this technology in a tiny package. But it was def- it was not the same watch as the forty two millimeter. And then when the series two came out. They made a lot of, you know, a, a lot of significant changes uh, to both. They put a bigger battery in, um, and they they really made the 38 millimeter stand alongside its big brother as the same watch, basically, where it didn't really feel like you were getting a a subpar experience if you went for the smaller size. And then, but the thing that like really stood out to me as this is Apple, basically almost showing off on their silicon expertise is the fact that the 38 millimeter comes in LTE. And not only does it come in LTE, but it is still just as good as the 42 yep. millimeter LTE. Like the battery isn't non-existent if you use the 38 millimeter LTE. And I, I like looking at, okay, so the 38 millimeter with LTE is the exact same size as the normal series three. It's just a little bit heavier. It's like two grams heavier. Yep. The next, like, there are other LTE watches, and the closest they can get is almost, like, 45 grams, 50 grams. Right. Um, and they're all in these big, giant casings. And that, that, to me, says, like, not only did we figure out how to do this, we figured out how to make LTE in a small watch form factor uh, without killing the battery, 
but we like we did it. We we actually made this device and sold it um, to prove that that this is possible and that we're not looking at the small watch as a second class citizen because it would have been really it would have been really easy for Apple to just be like, well, the 38 millimeter is like what you want if you want the basic Apple watch. But if you want all the features, you want to go 42, like, you know, like the iPhone 8 and the iPhone 8 Plus and the Plus has the better camera. Right. Um, and the fact that they didn't, the fact that they were able to put all of that technology in the same watch, like that, that is a, a huge deal to me. Right. Um, and I don't think people, like you're saying, I don't think people really, the average consumer really gets how big of a win that is for that form factor and that form size. Uh, and, and it, you know, it, here it is the third generation. And I think the LTE is such a great example of it where it's not just like, go back two years when it was the first generation watch and first generation Android wear devices were coming out and it ju- it's just going to take the Samsungs and the LGs and other, you know, the other companies making these watches a few years to catch up, to get a watch down to that size. In the meantime, Apple's kept the same size and has added a, a extra performance, way faster CPU starting in the second generation one, um, faster CPU again, in the third one, uh, and LTE, which is, it's just huge. And, and I also think back to like the 2009, 2010, 2011, uh, smartphone market. Uh, and the iPhone was so much smaller than competing phones. And I know that we've, you know, part of the reason was obviously, you know, it's obvious now, uh, that, there are people who really want like 5.5 inch phones, yeah. but Apple's the only company that was, and still even now with the iPhone SE that is also making a first class top tier, excellent performing smartphone. That's that small. I mean, and that's in that package. Right. Yeah. Um, I, and I think like the fact that, uh, like I, I, I see a fair number of iPhone SEs, and I, I guess I, you know, like if I'm out on the street and I just see somebody who's using an iPhone SE, I don't know for sure if it's an SE or an, it could just be an old 5S. But I, I, I've seen them. You know, I, you know, I'm just this is what I do. I've said this before on the show. I'm just it. I'm just nosy about people's <laughs> phones. I just can't help but look. I'm just fascinated by it. And a lot of the ones I see lately look like they're in excellent condition. And I also happen to notice that it seems to me like the people who have the iPhone SE are way more likely, way, way, way more likely than people with bigger phones of any make to not use a case. Like I see uncased yeah. iPhone SEs. And I think it makes sense because it's so grippable and so much smaller that you don't feel like you need a case. I feel even with the 4.7 inch iPhone size, the iPhone 7, the 6, the 6S, it just, I think a lot of people pick it up. And if, you know, and as soon as, the, you know, they buy it, they take it out of the case and a box. And even if they were thinking maybe I won't use a case, they pick it up and they're like, I want to get a case for this. And I feel like you don't get that feeling with the SE. But it's obviously the fact that Apple like was behind when the iPhone SE first came out. It took them months to catch up to demand. And and they even admitted in a conference call that, yes, the demand for SE took us by surprise. You know, Um, there's obviously a market for smaller phones and nobody else is making them. Yeah. And uh, and Apple was very smart in capitalizing on that. And the, the interesting thing to me, comparing phones to watches, too, 
is that phone I phones I feel like the screen size is more of a it's it's a it's more of a practical decision where you're just kind of like, yeah, I can deal with the added bulk of having a bigger screen or no, for my iPhone, I don't need to have a big screen. I'm not want to watch Netflix on it or I'm not taking a lot of video and I can deal with, the, you know, I, I the SE is perfect for me. Uh, with a watch, I feel like that decision is less practical and more personal uh, because here's the thing, you know, like I could, I would get more battery life and the, the screen size, I mean, it is definitely... For for tapability and interactivity, uh, the 42 millimeter screen size is certainly easier. I definitely I have some adjustments on my 38 where I have dynamic type up a little bit, um, and I'm not you know I'm far from blind, but it's just it just makes the interface and just interactivity a little bit yeah. nicer. Um, but when it comes to like the actual casing size, you know the 42 millimeter. Uh, I've said this before, like the 42 millimeter looks like a smartwatch on my wrist, which is to say, like, it looks the same way that I felt when I was carrying around a Newton in seventh grade, uh, where I loved it. And it was super cool technology, but it was very obvious that I was <laughs> using something tech tech related. Right. right. It's like this is this is not normal. The 38 millimeter Apple Watch looks like a watch that happens to also be a smartwatch. It doesn't call attention to itself as like, hi, look what I've got. Uh, and in fact, this is like a, maybe a funny anecdote, but there was a while there where I was testing two 38 millimeter Apple watches. I was testing the LTE version and the non-LTE version, and I had one on each wrist. And I, I, I went out, you know, multiple times with friends, and it would take them 30, 45 minutes to realize that I had a watch on both wrists because it just, it kind of just blends in yeah. as jewelry. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until like I, I, I moved both hands up at once where someone was like, wait a second, are you wearing two watches? <laughs> but that's the thing, right? Like if I was wearing two 42 millimeters or heck any, any of the Android wear watches, like the second you raise your wrist, it looks like you have a Star Trek like communicator like soldered on or you have like a Wonder Woman's gauntlets, right? Where you're just like, oh, I've I've got stuff on my wrist and and look at my technology. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just it to me, it feels bulky. It feels weird. And then there's the the side part of it, which I I didn't even really get into a ton in, in my article, but I, I am really concerned about it, which is health tracking. Like the reason that Apple Watch, there's, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why Apple Watch is kind of the most currently, according to that Stanford study, the most reliable tracker for baseline heart rate. Uh, but a lot of it, I, th I think, has to do with the way that the sensors are positioned. And the Apple Watch sensors are fairly small and fairly discreet. And the like the the circle, like the the, the circle that connects to your your wrist or your, your skin is fairly small. Um, and it's built in such a way that whether or not you wear the 38 or the 42, you're not going to run the risk of getting a like a reading over the side of your wrist because it's really it's really positioned right in the center there and i don't think that's true for a lot of the other watches their sensors are kind of much bigger and much more spaced apart so you can make all the arguments you want about like women want to wear big watches and big watches are in style and all of that um, but either you have to wear the big watch loosely if you want to really like rock the boyfriend bangle like watch style, or if you wear it tightly, the, the sensors may not even line up correctly on your wrist. So if you're trying to get a good reading, you may instead be getting like half skin, half like 
empty space falling off of your wrist or just not connecting properly with the blood vessels. Uh, it's just that that to me is one of those like side side issues that comes from forcing people whose wrists, you know, maybe aren't the right size to wear bigger watches because there's literally nothing else for them. Uh, I, I this is one of those areas where even if Apple released sales numbers like we sold, you know, seven million Apple watches last quarter, which they haven't done and I, I suspect are never going to start doing um, even if they did, I don't think they would break it down by size because even with iPhones, they just no. say, here's how many iPhones we sold and here's how much money we made from them. They give an average sale price. And so you can kind of backwards engineer a bit of that, you know, from the average sales price, because the closer it gets to the higher price, obviously the more of the higher price iPhones they're selling. So I don't think they mm -hmm. would, but boy, I wish that they would because anecdotally, I think Apple Watch is incredibly popular with women. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised oh. if there are more 38 millimeter watches being sold than 42. I mean, I see I, lots I of, would believe that 100%. <laughs> and I really think that, that we, if there were only a 42 millimeter size, I think it would be, I, I, I think it would be, I don't think that would be true. I think there'd still be many women who buy it and wear it. But I don't think I think it would be far fewer than fifty percent. You know, I think it. Yeah. Because I just think it would look like a piece of technology on the wrist, as opposed to just looking like a nice digital watch on the wrist. Exactly, um, and I mean, you hit the nail on the head. A lot of women, you know, and this includes people like my mom and just uh, friends of mine. You know, almost almost all of my roller derby friends who started off wearing other smartwatch trackers or just, or fitness trackers have switched over to getting an Apple watch in part, um, because they've seen mine, yep. but in part because they're like, well, I don't know if this is going to look good. And then they go in and they try it on and then they find out some of the things that it can do. And keep in mind, like I'm talking a lot about the positive, the positive features of the Apple watch. The Apple watch still has problems. You know, it's not perfect. The soft third party apps is a whole different discussion. We can maybe get into it a large, a later date. Um, but there, you know, for all of its flaws, it does have some really useful features, uh, for people on the go. Um, and hell, like in, in Montreal, for example, um, my Apple watch is, uh, I, I don't even know <laughs> the word I'm looking for. It's a godsend, honestly, because everywhere in Montreal is PayPass compatible. Mm. So I haven't had to pull out, and this is doubly important because when you're living in a foreign country and you have an American card, uh, I don't have a pin on that card. So anytime I have to use the physical card, I have to sign for it, which is something that isn't done because everybody else here has pins. So they just look at you like you're a crazy person. Um, but with the Apple Watch, because it has like the, the randomized number uh, security system, if I tap my card as opposed to like using my card physically, I don't have to sign for it. So anywhere I go in Montreal, I just I can use this as a payment system. And like that alone, that is that is a reason yeah. why a woman would buy an Apple Watch. Yeah, I, health tracking is a reason why they do it. And a perfect example is uh, my mother in law. My mother in law is not into technology and and but she has an Apple Watch and loves it. But and, and it's not because oh, her you know, technology loving son in law and and, you know, and my wife who's you know, <laughs> not really a, an enthusiast, but, you know, you know, has a has and uses you know an iPhone and iPad and MacBook Pro. Um, 
like like we pushed it on her. It was like she asked for an Apple Watch. It wasn't like we were like, here, you're gonna take this. Like we like when we bought her, <laughs> we bought her an Apple TV for like Christmas the one year, and that was us saying, I think you know, I think she'll really like that. Because uh, you know, she was like renting movies in iTunes on her iMac and watching them on her iMac. And we're like, let's just get her an Apple TV. She she has a big TV. You know, why in the world would you watch a movie on an iMac when you have a TV in the living room? So that was us. Mm-hmm. Apple TV was us buying her something she would not have asked for. But she wanted an Apple Watch because she already had a Fitbit, which, again, we didn't buy her. She mm. bought the Fitbit herself uh, and absolutely loves it. I don't think that my mother-in-law would have bought an Apple Watch if it was only in 42 millimeters. Because she, no. she has, I mean, tr- truly tiny wrists. Uh, it it. it I, I just it wouldn't have occurred to her, you know, and the fit, you know, it's certainly yeah. not to replace a little Fitbit band that was, you know, just like a bracelet. Yeah, exactly. Well, if you look at the fit at the Fitbit's other heart rate trackers um, until you get to the smartwatch size and actually start playing around with smartwatches, they they are they're very skinny little little uh, bands that look like bangles. And those are, you know, those there's nothing nothing against those. Those are actually quite useful if all you want to do is heart rate and sleep rate track. Like if you don't want the other, the other smartwatch features, then that's a perfectly good alternative option. But there's a lot to be said about what the Apple watch and Android wear watches can offer. That, and that brings me to my last Apple related topic or Apple watch related topic. And I, I, I I know I've mentioned this recently, but it's, it's come up again is I cannot believe how many people out there continue to to persist in this belief that the Apple Watch is a flop. Uh, I, I, I'm i astounded on a daily basis how many people I see on the street wearing Apple Watch. I, it seems to yeah. me like incredible. And and the reason it popped up is uh, like that the there was a story a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, a month or two ago, where... Uh, the Boston Red Sox got caught uh, by the Yankees using an Apple Watch to receive information that you're not supposed to use digital equipment in the dugout of a baseball game. And it turns mm-hmm. out they weren't actually using an Apple Watch. It was a Fitbit, uh, supposedly. But it got all sorts of traction, and I, I you know, linked to it. Um, but the joke that was made by like a hundred different people on Twitter was uh, the real story here is that somebody actually found a use for an Apple Watch. And everybody, you know, and it's like 5,000 <laughs> likes, retweets yeah. and stuff like that. And I don't get that at like, all. Ha-ha, guys. Like, <laughs> it, 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 to me, and it's not, it, it, it's like a mentality, I think, of, uh, I think it comes from a place where, where people who aren't into technology and don't have an Apple Watch and don't think they don't want an Apple Watch. And maybe they don't. Maybe they're right that they, that they really don't want one. Um, but I feel like it comes from a sort of... Uh, a resentment of the rise of technology, technological devices in our lives. You know, that there are, you know, that they, they themselves know I'm not going anywhere without my smartphone, but I kind of resent that, you know, like, yeah. And that they don't want, they so not want another one thing to become like an essential part of people's (laughs) daily lives that they, they sort of decided that it's useless and that's it, you know, and, and then work backwards from, from that wish. We're too connected. Right. No more connected devices. No, I, I get that. And and honestly, like if you take a step back and you look at the Apple Watch from a lens of a non-technologist or somebody who's just not interested in having technology on the wrist, they see it as, oh, this is another thing that's just going to like annoy me to death with notifications or what, forcing me to stand. What is this nonsense? You know, like I, I understand where people are coming from there. 
Um, and then there's the other the other side of the coin where people saw the Apple Watch in its Series One days, right, where apps took over two minutes to launch and, you know, oh, yeah, it can use Siri, but when does Siri actually work? You know, and I, I do think that that in some ways worked against it because while Apple was still kind of figuring out the speed of this thing and, and how to manufacture it, you know, there, there were a lot of Apple Watch apps on day one. Um, but very few of them were very good because obviously people were building Apple Watch apps without actually having an Apple Watch in hand. Um, and because they took forever, everybody was like, well, this is a subpar experience and just kind of walked away. Um, and there are, like I say that, uh, but two years later, there are really, really good watch apps out there. Um, there are some really bad ones too, but there are some really, really smart ones that take advantage of the size of the watch and make sense of like, these are the things that you would use your watch for. And like, if I was just to go down a list of like things that I regularly use my Apple Watch for. I use it for fitness tracking, right? I use Siri on the Series 3 nonstop because Siri is actually functional and reliable. Um, not only is it much faster through the iPhone, but now with LTE, it's it's almost instantaneous if I want to just, you know, call it up. Um, I use the Apple Watch. There's an app that lets you automatically translate uh, speech to whatever language you want. So if I'm like, if I'm walking around Montreal and I see a word that I don't recognize, <laughs> literally all I have to do is pull up that that watch app and say the word, or at least try and approximate the pronunciation, and it'll give me a translation. Um, I use it for two-factor authentication all the damn time because Authy has a an app built in that literally just gives you your two-factor codes. So instead of having to like grab my my iPhone and log into Authy and find the code, I literally just open the app and it's on my wrist and I can type it out on my computer or on my iPhone without having to switch things. Hmm. I use it for sports information, right? I the at bat is kind of a it's it's a little bit buggy, but it is really impressive the the amount of information that they want to give it to you, you know? Yeah. I use it actually big here's a big thing that I use it for especially on the the 8 plus. And this is a feature that I feel like people don't really know about is that the Apple Watch can be used as a camera remote. Uh, so you can, you know, have a full screen display of your iPhone camera on your wrist. But not only that, you can take photos with it. And now with uh, watchOS 4 and iOS 11, you can use it to take video and you can use it to take portrait mode photos. So the, for the first time, like even if you don't have an iPhone 10 and you're not going to be able to take portrait selfies, if you can set your iPhone up somewhere, you can still take a portrait mode photo with your watch. It's like things like that, things like the weather, mm. things like to-dos. Like there's just, there's a lot. There is really quite a lot that you can do with, with the Apple Watch. So like what you were saying, it absolutely frustrates me to hear people just blow off the watch as like, oh, it's just another thing that's going to tap you on the wrist incessantly right. and make you hate it. Like it's it's useful. Right. It's useful. I say, and I say this coming as somebody who who is, I like my Apple Watch, but I don't, I, I'm not like, I don't wear it 24-7. Like, because I, I still like wearing mechanical watches so i'm not even the world's biggest apple watch fan uh you know and the big loss with that is that i don't really get consistent fitness tracking you know if if days you know if i don't even wear it over the weekend mm -hmm. you know it's it and it in the back of my mind it bugs me a little and i can totally see how for some people that would it would drive them crazy and they would just they would have to wear their apple watch all the time i totally get that i just don't have the bug to want that 
complete fitness tracking. Like I kind of wish I had it, but it's not enough to make me only wear Apple watch. But so I'm coming from Mm -hmm. the perspective of somebody who's not the biggest Apple watch fan in the world. I I just, I'm blown away by how many people I see in the real world who have them. Um, You know, we had a family get together in the summer. It was a wedding in on Amy's side of the family. Uh, And, I forget how many people we had. We some, you know, the, it was down in South Carolina, and they rented a, a big house at the shore for everybody to stay in for for a couple of days. And uh, uh, there were like, I don't know, thirteen, fourteen people, fifteen people. Uh, not all necessarily in the same house, but fifteen people who were gathered together for the extended weekend of this thing. And it was like more than half of them had an Apple Watch, and that's not from me. That's not like you know, that's not even on my side of the family. It's just that. It, it I don't know. It just kind of surprises me it, that that it's yeah. that it's considered not a hit. Uh, here's my last it's pervasive. Th- my last thing, and I I wrote about this. I think I don't think I ever mentioned it on the show. But after I wrote about it, uh, I got so much email about it. I have to repeat it. My favorite tip for watchOS <laughs> four is that you can replace the app screen honeycomb layout with a simple scrolling list of apps, which. I yes. find way more way easier to navigate alphabetically ordered so you also get the app names like I feel like part of the problem with the honeycomb isn't just that the apps are too small like I have a couple problems with it I think they're too small they're they are the they are way smaller than the minimum tap target that Apple recommends for iOS you know mm-hmm. uh, too many of the icons look the same like they just look like orange you know like the stopwatch is an orange circle and the timer is an orange circle. <laughs> And they're all orange circles. It's so frustrating. Right. And the timer icon arguably could be a stopwatch. Yes. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's literally the same icon, except the stopwatch has both of the hands pace, right. pointing to the 12 and the timer has it right. pointing to like 11. Right. Uh, it's awful. And it's like it, it is pretty. It is very pretty. So I totally get where it came from <laughs> it came from this sort of design is how it looks side of apple not the design is how it works but it's the only device apple has ever made where there's a list of apps where they only show the icons without the name of the app with it like the mm. classic macintosh showed you the icons with a name underneath current Mac OS 10 always shows you whether you're in list view or icon view or whatever, always shows you the name of the app. The iPhone shows you the name of the app. Everything shows you the name of the app because the name is actually, you know, even though the icon might be the most recognizable thing, it's still useful to have a name. So anyway, you can switch to a list view, but the way you do it is not obvious. What you do is you go to the, uh, the app view and you do a, a 3D touch. You press and then you get an option for grid view or list view. And I had so many, so anybody with an Apple watch, I recommend you try it. I think you'll like it when you, when you do need to go to app view, I think you'll like it so much more. I think it should be the default, frankly. I, I think so too. The, the other thing I really like about it is that it takes your hands off of the screen because you can just scroll with the digital crown. Right. So you're Which not you're covering up half of the screen. Yeah. Right. It's great. I love that tip. All right, let's take a break, and I'll thank our first sponsor. It's our good friends at Audible. Audible turns your commuting time into time to get motivated. Their unmatched selection of audio content includes business, science, motivation, audiobooks. Amazing narrators turn mundane drive time into productive and enlightening opportunities. 
You can truly transform your daily commute by signing up for Audible, and you can fill up your entire commute with all of the audio content you could ever want. No matter how, how long or short your commute, you could never run out of content with Audible. That's how much stuff they've got there. So when you take your ride, ride with Audible. You can start a 30-day trial of your first audiobook, and your first audiobook is free. You get a 30-day trial, and your first audiobook is free. Now, where do you go to find this at? You go to audible.com slash talk show. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash talk show. Uh, they, they like it when I include a recommendation of a book. I'll tell you what book I've been reading lately. Uh, it is a book by a New York Times sports writer, longtime New York Times sports writer named Bill Pennington. And the book is Billy Martin, Baseball's Lost Genius. Now, if you don't like baseball, you're probably not going to like this book. Um, but you don't have to be a Yankees fan to like it. It's just an amazing story of a guy who, Billy Martin, if you don't know, played for the Yankees in the 1950s with uh, Mickey Mantle and those guys at the time when the, the Yankees were just unbelievably um, unbelievably successful in the World Series every year, and they won most of them. Um, but it was sort of a hard-drinking, hard-living team <laughs> and a very interesting uh, era, you know, it's sort of that Mad Men era of, of 20th century. Uh, and there's so many good stories, but Billy Martin led such an amazing life, uh, ended up after becoming a player, was famously a manager. Uh, I think he was fired by the Yankees six, five times, uh, was, but it was hired six times as the manager. Like imagine, imagine getting fired by the same boss, <laughs> five times and then coming back for a sixth time it's it's truly and it's a super super it's one of the best biographies i've ever read it's it's, it's certain aspects of some biographies that i find dreadfully boring uh, but this it it, it really feels it's a thick book but it really feels like uh there's nothing in there there's there's no padding in there it really is uh it, and you could tell that it, you know it, it, to me it, you can tell that he comes from a newspaper background where space is at a premium uh, so that's my recommendation. It's it's a great story. I think any baseball fan, Yankee fan or not, would really enjoy this story because it really takes baseball from the the pre modern era of the nineteen fifties through to the modern era of uh, up through the nineteen eighties when Billy Martin was still managing. So that's my recommendation. And again, you can sign up for Audible at audible dot com slash talk show. What's next on our list? You know what? You were mentioning mm. VIPs. I have just as a small topic. I, I use VIPs in email because I have notifications off for all of my email accounts. I may have to change this, really. Uh, and I've had it set for, for years now that I only get notifications for VIPs. And then, mm -hmm. uh, and I've slowly but surely, every time I see an email that I didn't get notified about, and I think, ooh, I wish I'd been notified about that one. I really wish I would have gotten to that right away. I, I add that whoever sent it to VIPs. Well, guess what I found out? <laughs> you can only have, mm -hmm. you can only have a hundred VIPs. 
I'm, I guess I'm not surprised that you of all people hit up on that limit, but really only a hundred, a hundred it's, and it's, it, so you, once you have a hundred and then you click the star in mail to add someone, you get a, a, a dialogue box that, that tells you, you can't add anymore. Here, let me see if I can. <laughs> so there's, here's somebody who I would like to add. And now you got I get a dialogue that says, could not add VIP, a maximum of 100 VIPs is allowed. Please remove any unused VIPs and try again. Okay. This to me unused VIPs. Well, this is actually a tricky feature because there is no like go to a list of all. There's no interface to get to just show me all my VIPs. Surely, if I could just open a, a window either in mail or in contacts, or make a smart group in contacts that's only my VIPs, then I could like just scroll through the list and say, ah, oh, I don't need. You know, I'm sure I could easily. Yeah, I don't. I don't talk to this person anymore. Right. I'm sure that, that I know for a fact that I've got people who worked for Apple PR who are no longer with the company. Uh, I know that they're in there, but there's no easy way to just get to a list of all your VIPs. I mean, the best I've found is to go to the VIPs mailbox and mail and then and just scroll through past well, emails and, and go to, yeah, and go to the, you know, sort by name and just start looking for names that you don't care about anymore. But it's such a frustrating <laughs> feature because I, I, I cannot imagine that there's truly a need for a technical limit of 100 VIPs. And it's such a nice even number that I just imagine that when they were coding the feature uh, that somebody decided up front, well, let, let's, you know, let's, we, you know let, we don't want people making a ton of them. Let's make a limit. And somebody just said, well, 100, all right. And then somebody coded in, you know, like I imagine there's just like one line of code where there's like if it's you know said limit to a hundred right. yeah like and hundred and one and Y two K right and that if Apple would I mean I guess somebody out there is going to say well, file a radar I guess I should file a radar but I, I feel Wait. like somebody could just type in change that from one hundred to five hundred and it's not going to affect <laughs> performance at all right uh, and I'm not even sure there needs to be a limit is there really a limit like could you you know what what would be the problem if I can't understand what the problem would be if 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 you were allowed to have 998 VIPs. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I think that it's a uh, how do we say a niche use case because the vast majority of people aren't really getting well. The vast majority of I would say normal computer users who just use email, you know, for their work and maybe the occasional family email probably don't need more than 100 people. But when you're dealing with, you know, if you work for a big company or if you interact with a bunch of different PR people, for example, like we do, uh, not missing emails from a, a large group of people becomes a vastly more problematic issue. Yeah. And actually, I'm kind of surprised that Apple didn't make that higher because I feel like... Uh, there are a lot of people, you know, if you're in Apple internally, you're like, oh, I can't miss an email from XYZ, you know, all of these. If if Eddie either, ever emails me, if Tim ever emails me, I probably need to have them set as VIPs. Right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, in my opinion, honestly, it's a workaround, right? Because the... And I, I don't know how I feel about this right now, but I'm I'm leaning towards the fact that like our mail is going to turn into like closer to Google's like auto, you know, in contextual sorted mailboxes sooner or later. Yeah. Like they're Apple. Apple hasn't really experimented with this yet um, beyond like when you search, it tries to give you top results. But I can't help but think that we're going to see Core ML used to to try and really uh, contextualize your emails mm -hmm. so that 
okay, well, we know that whenever you get an email from this person, you almost immediately write back. So we're going to make sure that this, this goes to the top of the list. And that's just, that's just something that doesn't exist yet in mail. So we'll, we might see it down the line, but I, I just, I don't think that Apple in Endgame wants you to have to organize your emails or put them into folders or any of that. They like, the, the whole point of uh, the the problem of email right now is just that it, it gets drowning. If you yep. get too much, you get spam, you get everything else. You get things that aren't spam, but basically are in the form of like 10 million, you know, I, I can't count the amount of like shops that send me daily newsletters of like, this is a sale. Don't you want this sale? And I was like, no, it's- I thought... One thing from you, yeah. once. <laughs> it, it's a real problem for me. I've always been bad at email. I, I, I say it on my website contact form that I'm a terrible correspondent. Um, but it's it's gotten worse for me. It really is. And part of it is that I'm a one-person company. Uh, I mean, I guess. I mean, I've thought about it, like I, I, like hiring an assistant or something. But it seems it seems so decadent to me. Like, I, I feel like I don't need an assistant. All I have to do is write this website and do a podcast, you know, f- 40 times a year. Uh, it just seems ridiculous to me that I can't answer my own email, but I find that on days where I like commit myself to like, at least read every email that comes in and, you know, have like a, my today, I, I have a smart mailbox that says like today, and it's just every email in these, from these three accounts that's come in in the last 24 hours. Um, and the days where I'm like, I'm going to commit to zeroing out that not, not like inbox zero, like forget that. I mean, uh, just today's inbox zero, uh, the days when I do that, I get so much less done writing for daring fireball. I really do. Like it, it just turns it into like, like a day where I have, you know, it, it, just keeping up with my email feels like a day where I have like uh, a doctor's appointment and I need to pick the kid up from school and, or, or, or like there's the kid has a basketball game after school or something like that. Like it just feels like, you know, just email alone. It, it ruins my day. Really. It literally does. And then there's days where I just like ignore it and like, don't even look at my mail and I get so much more done. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I, at this point, I kind of, and even I, Slack is starting to go into that category for me too. Cause I now have like seven Slack groups. Um, but Honestly, the the only thing that I feel like I'm really present and able to answer, going back to our original conversation, is messages, yep. is these real-time notifications. Because yep. I'm like, if it's real-time, then I either have to answer it right this second, or I just don't answer it. Yep. And, you know, I don't mind that. No, iMessage I, I has changed, you know, it, it's so essential to me. It really is. It, it's because I my iMessage is always at zero. Or if it's not, it's like at three, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like it's it's oh i just haven't read this in the last hour yeah. i'm gonna go check it yeah. speaking of email i got a great email i mean i am uh, over the moon i got a great email yesterday from amazon.com uh i got my settlement in the uh, apple ebooks antitrust <laughs> settlement did you get did you get your credit yet uh, I just, I found a thing. Is this the one that says your app store credit? Uh, I don't know about that. This one's from amazon.com and it says, dear, See, I didn't, I didn't get, dear John Gruber, <laughs> you have a credit of $1 and 52 cents in your Amazon account. <laughs> Apple incorporated funded this credit to settle antitrust lawsuits brought by state's attorney general and class plaintiffs about the price of electronic eBooks. 
That's oh my lord, fantastic! I got a dollar fifty-two. Thank God, this a whole dollar. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't. Uh, I have a friend. I do have a friend who, I, when these emails first started coming out, uh, I have a friend in the one Slack group I'm really uh, active in, who I, th- I think is truly a voracious reader, and he got like seven seven dollars and thirty cents. <laughs> uh, it's so ridiculous. Above and beyond the merits of the, that ebook case, and my argument uh, again, I, I just think that I think that U.S. antitrust law is—I've written about this, but I think it's hopelessly uh, distorted. In the, it's convoluted. Well, but the basics of modern U.S. antitrust law, and they come from actually uh, like the main theorist behind them was actually what's his name, Robert Bork, the. F- infamous uh reagan nominee to the supreme court who got rejected oh man um but he he it like it it, in the 70s 1970s or thereabout i could get have the decade wrong they u.s antitrust law become became solely focused on uh consumer prices and that the idea is that it's not this is how you tell if a monopoly is being abused if if prices are rate if the prices consumers pay are are unnaturally raised. So a perfect example of that, where it actually was, I think, in in the interests of both the market and consumers and just fair, was uh, breaking up AT&T, where uh, when I grew up, a long distance phone call cost like a dollar a minute. And uh, even as late as when I was in college, like uh, Amy was in Pittsburgh, I was in Philadelphia, and we the best way, you know, the the only ways we really communicated were either on the phone or, uh, uh, like, a, there were t- terminal-based text chatting things that we we could do. But uh, <laughs> there was no, you, you couldn't talk over the internet. You know, there wasn't anything like Skype. It was impossible. Um, and we, uh, it was like my biggest monthly cost. It, uh, uh, even like, like up there with food was my phone bill. Just from talking, you know, hour here you know an hour once or twice a week to to amy from pittsburgh to philadelphia it was ridiculous mm-hmm. um so there's a case like what the, the where the phone companies you know were it, the prices we paid for telephone calls were ridiculous and once they got broken up it, it very very quickly just not quickly enough for someone who went to college in the mid 90s <laughs> dropped to the point where nobody even thinks about long distance anymore right like it doesn't really matter yeah it's like a, a fraction of a cent if it's not automatically included right it just don't even it, it like how far away the person is doesn't really even matter you know it, let alone that we're using cell phones that don't really you know it, it's just breaking it up was good for consumers uh I think it's ridiculous that uh, I don't want to relitigate the case, but I think it's ridiculous to argue that Apple with iBooks was the antitrust violator and Amazon with the Kindle, which sells like 75% of all eBooks was the, uh, the victim. But anyway, it's it, the other thing. And I, I forget who wrote about this. I don't know if it was Ben Thompson or who, but uh, there's a good case to be made that class action lawsuits in general are a racket, a true racket, and the only people who truly benefit from them financially ever are the lawyers who take like twenty yeah. percent or something like that. So there's lawyers who brought this case against Apple get like twenty percent of the settlement, which is a a windfall because it just goes to like one law firm. And the actual quote unquote victims, us, the consumers who are buying Kindle books that 
cost eleven ninety nine instead of nine ninety nine. <laughs> I got a dollar fifty two. <laughs> One whole book. Congratulations, John. Thank God. I can't buy a book for a dollar fifty two. No, the the, the difference right, in one book. Right. Um, <laughs> did you you didn't get one if of the, these? If you had, uh, I have a I have a different email in my box. I have an email that says something about hold on, ebook settlement credit redistribution of funds. You previously received credits in your Apple account resulting from settlements in the case titled In Re Electronic Books Antitrust Litigation. We are happy to inform you that a supplemental distribution of credits has been approved. By October 18th, you will have a new automatic credit in your Apple account. You can use your credit online for products or services sold by Apple. So apparently I got got something to use on the iBook store. (laughs) I got the same email. I only found it, though, by searching. It went to my junk. It's from ebook settlement at... uh, Q- QG email. QG email. No, I wonder why that went to. Sp- I wonder why that went to spam. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder. Yeah, I didn't check my junk. Maybe my. Uh, yeah. Maybe my Amazon credit, or maybe it's just because I don't buy books on. I I actually am one of the few people who buy books on iBooks. Uh, I, I I vastly prefer it. I uh, I I'm a, I, I tend to buy them on paper. To be honest. Yeah, that's fair. I really that's do. Uh, I I buy, you know what? This is a maybe this is a little bit of a digression, but I feel like if it's a book that I'm going to pulp through, you know, like it's the kind of thing that I want to just read in the summer yeah. or I'm reading on a, a plane or something, or if it's the start of a series where I know I'm going to have to buy like 12 books, I yeah. buy it all online because I'm like, chances are I don't really care enough about these books that I want them in my personal library. But things like children's books, which I collect, and or if I read a book uh, in, online that I love, I will buy that in paper. But I've I don't know. I've moved too many times, yeah. John. I feel like I've moved house way too many times to buy paper copies of all these books. Yeah, I just uh, moved. Uh, I, we moved earlier this year, but just last weekend we were rearranged. We still, you know, <laughs> we still have the one room in the house that's just full of boxes that we haven't unpacked yet. <laughs> and we decided mm-hmm. it would be better to move them down the basement. And so I, I moved these boxes down the basement. Uh, and <laughs> I was reminded a of <laughs> just how, <laughs> how out of shape I am and B uh, just how goddamn heavy a one box of books is. <laughs> it really is the heaviest goddamn thing. When I was in high school, I had a job. Uh, we we uh, my high school in between tenth and eleventh grade moved from one building to another. It was we used to when I was a small kid. We had the the, the this district I was in had an elementary school, a middle school, and a high school, and it was a re- re- small public school. Um, shrunk enough that to save money, they closed the middle school, and then instead of having one to four in one school grades five to eight in the middle school and then nine to 10, they split it to one to six was in the elementary school and seven to 12 Mm. was at the high school. Um, Mm -hmm. Long story short, but they hired a bunch of kids for the summer to help move the school. And so that was my my summer job that year was working as a mover. And uh, it it was, you know, it was hard labor. I mean, moving (laughs) is hard. And, but I, you know, I was, I, I played basketball and I was athletic at, at, at that point in my life. Uh, and so it was sort of like, you know, it was sort of like 
getting a summer job lifting weights. I mean, it wasn't, you know, that's how I saw it, but, uh, no air conditioning moving and you know, everything is hard to move. Desks are hard to move. It's all sorts mm-hmm. of things. Books are, hard to move. are worse to move. The, the goddamn library was the worst. It was, it was just hell. <laughs> and the worst part about was that the library was one of the last things that we moved. And, uh, so you're already all exhausted. Yeah. And it, uh, it was it was one of the last things we moved in August, but the kids uh, it, it was a you know I don't forget how many of us they hired they hired at least like a dozen of us, um, but all of all of my friends all the kids who played soccer quit because soccer practice started and I didn't play soccer, so it was like there were f- fewer of us. <laughs> <laughs> this is a true story. This is <laughs> so uh, now I told you I played basketball and. Uh, my basketball coach, who I loved, truly, truly loved, it's, it's, it's you know, everything you'd ever want in a coach, a true inspiration for life more than just sports. He, his day job was a construction worker. And it just by coincidence, his, the company he worked for was hired to do the construction work to renovate the middle school to turn it into the new high school. Um, and so at one point, the library, one of the reasons we moved it last was that the new library was physically one of the last things to be finished. And so we moved a whole bunch of the library books from the old high school to the new high school, but we put them in the gym. So we were going to have to move them again from the gym to the library. Oh, no. And so I, I constructed a giant pile, like six to eight feet tall, and made more or less like a little igloo with a little way to crawl in. And then I, I'd crawl in there and take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know what? I would, I would live in a book yurt. I would be okay with that. Well, the one time I'm in there taking a nap and I wake up and I hear Gruber and I thought, Oh shit, I'm in trouble. You know, somebody's caught me and I look up and there's my coach <laughs> staring at me through there. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing in there? And I said, <laughs> said I was taking a nap and he goes he's just he just muttered like Jesus Christ and just just like walked away <laughs> oh my gosh yeah. well did you dream of literature at least no have I ever told you that I've never really held a job for very long <laughs> <laughs> hmm I wonder why <laughs> oh man it's it just sounds like you're better working on your own time yeah with uh, with your own book naps, uh, I think that's I think that's probably true. All right, let me take a break here. And uh, speaking of naps, let's talk about Squarespace. That's the worst segue ever. There's nothing. There's really nothing related to naps with Squarespace. <laughs> Maybe if you're if you're uh, starting up a new mattress reviewing, yeah, blog, there you go. Uh, perhaps, yeah, yeah, you could uh, you could do it on Squarespace. I've heard that that's a thing. Uh, uh, Squarespace. Look, next time you need to make a website, start with Squarespace. Make that it's it's where you go. You can you can do everything at Squarespace. You can register your domain. You can pick a template. You can modify the template. You can create a blog. You can host a podcast. You can create a store and have all the e-commerce stuff taken care of by Squarespace. You don't have to sit there and sign up for uh, SSL certificates and stuff like that, and and compliance with all the things you have to do to take credit cards and and payments over the web. Nope, you get it right there with Squarespace when you want to put a store or what if you're a designer and you want to create a portfolio for your work, show off your work, guess what? You could do it with Squarespace. Uh, it, it really, there's no other way. There's no reason not to start with Squarespace and see how far you can go and whether you can take it. Uh, 
I keep saying this over and over again. The number one thing to me in the back of my mind about Squarespace, if I, if I didn't know better, is I would think that it was the sort of thing where, sure, there's a dozen templates to choose from, but then your, square, you know, your website's going to look like one of these 12 Squarespace websites. That's not the way it works at all. It's so customizable. It's ridiculous. Uh, I, I swear, I, you'd be shocked at how many websites you could visit on a regular basis are actually backed by Squarespace. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't even know what led me to do it, but I did a view source on the homepage at pixar.com and their Squarespace tags are in there at the top. Uh, <laughs> like that's, that's how good Squarespace is. And that's one of the other things too about Squarespace is that you never, ever, ever have to worry about, uh, your, your site getting too popular, getting fireballed or something like that. Like the performance of their sites is just top notch. They really, they, it's engineering wise, top notch. And they have unbelievable uh, technical support when you do need help with something. You can just call them up on the phone and a real person answers uh, and, and will talk you through whatever you need to do. Um, so your sites look professionally designed regardless of your skill level. No coding technical knowledge of HTML, CSS, or JavaScript required. Uh, but if you do have those sort of skills, you can dig in and modify it. Uh, intuitive, easy-to-use tools. And if you sign up for a year, you get a free domain. So start your free trial today at squarespace.com. And if you do decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code talk show and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. You can save 10% off your whole first year, save the 10% and get the free domain. So just go to squarespace.com, no special code, just squarespace.com. And the only thing you need to remember is that offer code talk show at, and that's when you purchase it. So my thanks to, to Squarespace for their continuing support of the talk show and daring fireball. I made my wedding website with Squarespace. There you go. You probably wouldn't yeah. have had it any other way. No. It, it, you know what? It was a whole heck of a lot less painful than what I was originally going to do, which was hand code it myself. Smart. Um, when are you getting married? Uh, 10 days? 11 days? I didn't know that. Holy uh, hell. Congratulations. Yeah. What the hell are you Thank doing you. doing a podcast? You've got stuff to do. <laughs> I to, do have stuff to you do. You don't have time for this. <laughs> <laughs> Holy smokes. I make time. Yeah, I have got a I've got a reminders list of like uh 32 32 things. Holy smokes, Serenity. I uh <laughs> Oh my god. I got the website done. I wrote a I just finished writing a, a giant runaround puzzle poem which uh, I I may have overdone this a little bit, but uh You? No. It's, <laughs> yeah, me? <laughs> yeah, October 29th. Oh It'll be my fun. God, that's congratulations. Uh, wow. Thank you. Yeah, I'm. I'm really also excited, by the way, that uh, that the iPhone 10 pre-orders are coming out like right around that time. So <laughs> I'm just not going to sleep for two weeks. It'll be great. I am so curious about how that how that is going. Like, because we have heard collectively, as far as I know, <laughs> absolutely not one word from Apple about the iPhone 10 since the event. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we have a date. And we haven't heard anything that the date isn't going to is going to be delayed. But there's been no, I mean, just nothing. It's it's sort of weird, you know. It's it's uh, just sort of like a, a here's this amazing phone that we've been anticipating for an entire year. Uh, here's a date two months from now, and in the meantime, nothing. Other than I guess, have fun sitting on your hands. Right, I guess the only thing we've really heard from Apple about this since the event are the developer guidelines for how to deal with the the rounded corners the and the notch. 
Um, but even that was obviously prepared in advance of the event. It just was rolled out to the developer channels, you know, in the week afterwards. I mean, I, we, yeah, you know, and we can't even make a topic out of it. You know, it's not something there's, <laughs> there's nothing we know about it. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's literally, so there's a new iPhone coming in, uh, in about a week and a half, John, do you think that they'll actually ship it on the day that it is available? Like, is there going right. to be stock? I, I don't know. I would guess that if it was delayed, that they would uh, announce it as soon as they knew it was going to be delayed, to, you know, because the later, mm-hmm. you, you know, the, get the bad news out of the way. So I guess it's going to go on sale on time and, and will ship. But in what quantity? Who knows? You know, is it going to be there's like 10 of them available? And if you're like one of the lucky people who get your order in at 12.00 and three seconds, you know, three seconds after they flip the switch at the store that you're one of the lucky ones who gets one. I don't I, I don't know. Is it you know, are they successfully going to pump 15 million of them into people's hands on November 3rd? I, I, who knows? But as far as I know, Apple pencil o'clock. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, are, yeah, I I know nothing. <laughs> all right, one of the other big topics that have come up this week was uh, the reliability of MacBook modern MacBook keyboards. The new low travel. Uh, I think the, I think the new ones are the butterfly, or is butterfly the old? Yeah, the it's a it's a variation on the butterfly. Right. Uh, and this week's was prompted by an absolutely to me. Outstanding story that Casey Johnston wrote for the outline about her uh, like six month or so old MacBook Pro, which she you know I love the I just love the lead of the story where it's just you you know the you are there style of she's at the Genius Bar and the guy's running like the third of three like half hour software diagnostics on her MacBook because this. It's like the space bar doesn't work, or every time she hits the space bar, she gets two spaces, is the problem. And the guy's mm-hmm. and the guy says it could be a piece of dust. <laughs> and it's the third time she's had to take it in for the same problem, and it's the third time that the genius, you know, a different third different genius to say it could be a piece of dust. And and she, it's like she's incredible. Like the first time it happened, she just thought she got a, a dopey genius, you know, because how could it be a piece of you know how could a piece of dust uh, mm-hmm. break your actually do this break your brand new uh, you know MacBook uh, keyboard. Uh, but now that it's the third, it's sort of like, huh, I guess this is the standard answer and, uh, wow. And I just know anecdotally, you know, uh, I've heard from, you know, I hear from lots of people cause I, you know, people, random readers will write in with problems or, or listeners of the show, but even just friends, you know, I have friends who've had problems with these keyboards and again, separate the subjective like when the keyboard is operating perfectly as designed whether you like it or not which is debatable and i you know i'm almost infamous for having very picky taste in in maybe even eclectic taste in keyboards with my preference for mechanical ones at the desktop like the uh, apple extended keyboard too put aside mm-hmm. that subjective opinion of the keyboard objectively it it seems obvious that there is a severe problem with the reliability of these keyboards that they break free keys get stuck. Uh, yeah. It, and it's, I, I just had a friend the other day, just the day I linked it and he was like, amazing. I cannot believe that you posted this, this day. And he sent me like a video and it's like his Q key, like every other time he presses it, it stays down. Like it's, so it's not even like a key that it, it, you need all the time. 
Like somebody told me, somebody on Twitter said that they, their I key was stuck. And the, oh. and the genius suggested uh, just not using the letter I and, uh, until it gets fixed or something. I, I, and it's like, how, how can, you know, if you don't want to send it away for three days, uh, you know, just don't use the letter I. And he, he's like, looked at him like, are, no you, big deal. are you serious? Is this, I, I, I mean, like, <laughs> right? Like maybe if it was like the tilde key, you know, the one with the back tick. Yeah. Maybe you could actually get by for a while unless you're like writing Perl code or something. Uh, it, it, that, there's a key that maybe you don't need all that often, but it's like, it, there's a real problem here. I mean, there's, I, I don't think there's any question about it. I mean, it obviously doesn't affect everybody. That's the other thing too, is it's like, there's some people who it's like, I, I so, so want to not believe anything bad about Apple that they're like, well, I have this keyboard and my, none of my keys are stuck. So they must be doing something wrong. And it's like, no, that's, it's, mm, it's just, it, it, it literally, I don't know. I think it comes down to a, um, do you eat near your computer? B, do you use your computer in an area where debris or other particles might get under it? And C, how often do you use your computer? <laughs> like those those three things, I think, make a huge difference in how that keyboard works, because I didn't have any problems with it up until September when we went out for the for the iPhone launch. Uh, and when I was sitting down, you know, after we'd, we'd done the event and we were hanging out at, a, at the visitor center and uh, writing some things, and I, I made the mistake of eating a sandwich next to my computer. And I, I don't normally do this. I think we've had this discussion before. I don't really eat near my computer. Uh, but I ate a sandwich and two little tiny crumbs somehow got stuck under the R key and the space key, respectively. And therein, I spent probably five days hammering at both of those keys to try and break down whatever molecule got stuck in it to, to make it unresponsive. And that was miserable. It, and since then, I've had like occasional problems with the space bar. But I was just like, what is going on? It, it's a design problem on Apple's part, though, because mm -hmm. you, you can't design for what people should do if you believe people should never eat near their computer or use their computer in a dusty environment. You have to design for what people do do and people do eat near their computers. I mean, my son, mm -hmm. I don't, but my son does my son. Cause my son's MacBook, my son and I have the exact same MacBook. We have the, a three-year-old 20 mid 2014, 13 inch MacBook pro. Um, and we didn't quite buy them at the same time. I got mine first and then he got his for Christmas that year. Um, uh, mine is in better condition than his, uh, but his is in good condition for a, a 13 year old kid. I, th I think with a three year old <laughs> with a MacBook <laughs> that he, at his school, uh, starting in like seventh grade, the kids are expected to take a notebook to school every day. So he, you know, it's not just like hmm. a around the house type thing, but around the house, it's his TV because he watches, you know, his TV is like YouTube and Netflix, uh, and his preferred device by far is his MacBook. You know, he has a, an iPad that's practically unused and, you know, he uses his phone, but it's, you know, the MacBook has the bigger screen and the fact that it's always propable up uh, compared to an iPad is a huge, you know, it's a huge appeal to him. But that means he, he eats with it. It It's, you know, again, it's not a messy. It's not like it's smeared with food, but he's definitely got crumbs under it. And his space bar got stuck. 
the space bar on his three-year-old MacBook Pro got stuck recently, and he just lived with it. Even though it was stuck, it still worked, which is it was amazing. Like it didn't really feel like it was going down, but when you hit it, it was almost like the space bar on an iPad keyboard, you know, on the screen, right? It was like a touch space bar. Like you'd touch it, it didn't click, but a space would appear where you're typing. So he was like, "Ah, it's fine." And I was like, "No, I can fix this." And I, you know, used like a little little prying tool uh, to pop the space bar off. And I didn't see anything in particular, but there was, you know, just some much air, got the air, air can of air out, blew it around, popped the space bar back on, clicked properly into place, and good as new. Like, I didn't even have to take it to an Apple store, and it was totally fixable. Uh, and that's an extreme condition. This is a kid who eats a lot of sandwiches near his keyboard. Um, so it's not just the fact, like, the problem with these new MacBook keyboards isn't just the fact that the keys get stuck uncommonly easy it's that the fix for it is Im- incredibly inconvenient they send it away and replace the entire top of the 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 bottom of the of the computer for you know it takes like three days to turn around <sighs> yeah that's not fantastic I, so how did you pop the key off? Did you just use a spudger? Yeah, I just used a spudger. And going from, I, I actually did some, I, I, this is one of the areas where YouTube is so cool. Like just, go, you know, search YouTube for a stuck space bar on a MacBook and you'll find videos of people who, you know, doing it. So you can, like, you can gain the experience of seeing somebody do it properly. Uh, the way I did it and the way some of the videos that I saw that looked to me like the safest way of doing it were is to go from the bottom of the space bar and pop mm, pop the and then pull it pop up pop the bottom up first and then very carefully you know unclip the rest of them uh and it's you know you study it if you look at it and you can look at the videos it's it's pretty easy to see how it goes back on and where it connects um and now again this is not the current keyboard this is the the last generation keyboard uh before doing that, before popping the key off, I tried just blowing air without popping it off. You know, it's sort of like do the least invasive thing first, just sort of try to blow. And that didn't that that didn't fix it. But just popping it off, blowing air, just, you know, rubbing anything off and making sure the little rubber thing in the center that's actually where the, the key press registers was clean and then popping it back on and it was good as new. It seems ridiculous to me that to get an unstuck key fixed, they have to send your computer away for three days. Yeah, it shouldn't be that hard. It really shouldn't. And and like I when I wrote about it, it's like it just the keyboard has to be again, feel of it aside, whether you like the way this new keyboard feels or not or or whether you think it's the sound is weird, the sound is a little clickier. I can I totally I I in my testing of the the new MacBook Pros last year, uh, within a week I got to like it. And and I do see I love the way that the keys don't wiggle around at all. Like in a sense, it does feel more premium when it's working properly because the keys are sort of like, and the way the whole key goes down at once. Um, I I think if I owned one and it worked properly, I'd get used to it quickly uh, and, and grow to like it. Uh, I, I think all laptop, I've never had a laptop keyboard, any laptop keyboard that to me feels as good as as a extended keyboard to mechanical keyboard or even even just the, the current Apple modern you know, wireless keyboard, just because there's more room for the keys to travel. Um, but it, you, your keyboard on your laptop has to be reliable. It has to be. 
Like it's, you know, and again, every, everybody's computer, you know, or, or some number of every computer is going to have problems uh, and have to go in. You have to send it to the store and, and be without it for a few days. Um, and it's a first generation, you know, the touch, the touch bar Mac is still technically a first generation product right. as annoying as that is. It's still, you know, it's the caveats of early, you know, early adopter apply. But it really does seem like the nature of this keyboard is that you, you, I don't know that you can expect to go three years without having the keyboard get stuck. And that's a huge problem. Like, I don't know. I just feel like I want my MacBook to be ready to go with complete reliability all the time, every, you know, nonstop. And the things that have to be reliable, the keyboard, the screen, and the trackpad have to be completely reliable. Those are the three, you know, and, and anything else, like how fast it is, how much RAM it is, that's all, you know, configuring. But the, 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 the things you actually interface with, the thing you look at is the screen, and the two things you touch are the keyboard and the trackpad. They, they have to be completely reliable. They're, the fundamental nature of the device is what you see and what you touch. Yeah. And if it's, if you get stuck keys or if you get a trackpad that's glitchy or doesn't move smoothly, I mean, it's the same thing as the, the early, you know, uh, like the resistive touch screens, right. Which were just so awful to use. Right. And it's like, if you're, if your main interaction point with a device is not great, you're not going to want to use the device or you're going to get frustrated with it. Yeah. That's a perfect example. It really is. Um, uh, I, uh, just as a semi-recent example, we had the the Wii U, uh, which the one that came, that's the Wii that the successor to the Wii that came with a controller that had a touchscreen on the controller, and the touchscreen mm-hmm. was so I don't think it was resistive. It's, I think it was capacitive, but it was so bad and it had lag that it just it it, it, it made it feel unreliable. It just felt like and, and once you were used to iPhone and Android caliber touchscreens, it's just unacceptable to, to ship one that had lag. Uh, but that's exactly true. Like, uh, like airline seatback touchscreens, right? It, you, they're terrible. They're absolutely terrible mm-hmm. because every once in a while your touch doesn't register. It has to be completely reliable. And I really do yeah. worry. I mean, I, I worry about what this says about Apple's priorities. Yeah, I mean, in this, I I am of two minds on it because, again, this is a first-generation product, and I feel like Apple has probably gotten enough complaints about the keyboard at this point that they're going to have to figure out how to fix it for the next version. Uh, but it's definitely a it's definitely them saying we want the the keyboard needs to be this big and it needs to be pretty. Make it work. Right. Uh, and not actually not actually realizing that you can't just make, you know, you can't just say make it work on one of the core features of your product. It needs to have the same, you know, they, they put so much care into this darn trackpad, right? Like the trackpad is a work of, a work of art in some ways. Uh, and for them to just be like, yeah, I know that more people are using touch at this point and they're probably not using keyboards that much, but we still write on them. Right. Like until until you can give me a haptic capacitive keyboard on a touch screen that actually feels like writing on a keyboard, I'm still going to be using my MacBook Pro keyboard. Right. Like the, um, the, way, so, the way that MacBook yeah. trackpads or even back to the PowerBook era, you know, I've always been the gold standard of trackpads for 
everything for their accuracy for you know doing what you want happening and something you don't want not happening right like every time you move the cursor it moves every time you click it clicks every time you're just typing you know it resists you know your your touches from your palm or something like that right like and infamously i mean i think it's gotten better because i think it's just one of those things that slowly over time people you know the other computer makers have gotten better but infamously for a very long time uh pc laptops even when you bought like a premium one had trackpads that were just crappy friend of the show and and guest on the last episode joanna stern used to write about it all the time and she's a great person to write about it because she's uh she's not really a diehard apple user you know she's sort of Mm -hmm. a very uh what's the word um She's just she's universally tech savvy, right? And and so she and has used you know used BlackBerry and Android phones for years before getting an iPhone, and had used PCs and Windows. Sort of open minded. I don't know what you want to call it. A, a poly, yeah, poly whatever. There's some kind of word that can come after the poly prefix. Um, <laughs> but so she's ju- you know like I would I'm in a very poor position to judge a a PC trackpad because I am d- so lost in windows and despise windows that I, you know, I'm, I'm, it, it's, I'm not in a good position for it, but she is. And she wrote so many good columns about why can't other people make a good trackpad? Sort of like, why can't other people make a 38 inch, a 38 <laughs> millimeter yeah, small Apple watch? watch. <laughs> um, it, it, in the same way, I think Apple's keyboards should be the gold standard of keyboards. I, they, they, you know, that's what you get. Why, why, you know, when when you sell a line of laptops that start at nine hundred ninety nine dollars, which is like three mm-hmm. times the starting price of most other companies. Like if your laptop, yeah. and they were, you know, if that's the frustrating right. thing, they were for a long time. Right. So I find it very worrisome because I feel like, and I've I, this is one of my favorite themes, is that it's. Your priorities are not an unordered list. They're an ordered list, right? So it's not like you can say our, our priorities are a bullet list and the bullets are, uh, you know, the device looks good, is lightweight, is thin, feels good, works fast. It matters what order you put these things in. And I worry that the Johnny Ive side of Apple that wants devices to be as thin and elegant as possible has elevated thinness above above the uh, keyboard should be the best keyboard on the market you know i think that they should start with let's make the best keyboard on the market we'll make it as thin as we can while keeping it the best keyboard on the market like that should be the goal. Make the keyboard as thin as they can while keeping it as as good or better than any keyboard on the market and then decide how thick the overall device has to be after that. Mhm. Well, and my frustrating thing is that they do do this for things like laptop screens, right? The arguably the 13-inch and 15-inch MacBook Pro have beautiful wide color laptop screens. And they're very thin, and they've they've packed a lot of technology into it. Same thing goes yep. for the trackpad. Yep. Um, so that it's not like they're abandoning those core principles. It's just for whatever reason the keyboard seems to have fallen off right. uh, the the importance right. list. No, it's very and, true. Yeah. Uh, another one that to me, it the one of the main reasons the the main thing I I love about the new MacBook Pros compared to my previous generation MacBook Pro that I own is the hinge. The, the hinge for the display 
is so much nicer on the new MacBook Pros. It's absolutely amazing. And so even though the device is thinner, somehow, even while making it thinner, they designed a way better hinge. And part of it is that the whole top, the whole mm -hmm. display is thinner and it's lighter weight. But it's like you can move it with just one finger with so little effort, but wherever you leave it, it stays. It, it, there's no looseness to it. It doesn't like droop or anything, but you, you, you move it so lightly. It's so great. And, and to me, it's one of those things that you can really see how much more care Apple puts into the design of its products. Like the hinges on competing laptops are never as nice as Apple's. Mm -hmm. Without a question. Right. Cause they, well, again, it's something that they've decided that this is important to put effort into. And it makes sense, right? Because they've put so much effort into the screen in recent years that, of course, you're going to want a hinge that's going to properly support and display that screen at whatever angle you want to look at right. it. And I can see it where, you know, it is kind of funny, and I don't think people would have predicted. In fact, people didn't really predict, you know, like it, it going back like 50 to 60 years of science fiction of what a computer would look like in the future. People didn't really expect them to be sort of fundamentally based on this late 19th century technology of the typewriter, right? <laughs> like it is kind of funny that this device that, you know, came of age in like 1870, uh, is, is the, the, that that keyboard is still like a basic part of the human interface of modern computers or at least of PC style yeah. computers, but it is. And there, it's, 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 you know, you, and it, for Apple not to prioritize that is foolish. And they have this whole other line of computers, iPads that skip that, you know, if you want to make a device that is, let's skip the keyboard because the keyboard, you know, we, there's all sorts of use cases where a physical keyboard is not important. They've got a whole line of computers where they can do whatever they want in that direction. But for certain people and some ta you know, some tasks, a hardware keyboard is essential. And you know, the Mac that's why the MacBooks and MacBook Pros still exist. It's why, you know, Phil Schiller swears up and down every time he speaks about it in public that the Mac has a bright future as far as Apple can see. Because they see these use cases where this form factor has a has a future. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just Apple is not interested in building keyboards because they don't or building fantastic keyboards because they don't see it as the quote unquote future of the platform. Um, because clearly, yes, there are still people who use them and I still use them and you still use them. But I, I can't help but wonder if they're just like, oh, we're so focused on the technology that's going to be in our computers five years from now that we're just kind of making do. And, oh, look, we made this new butterfly mechanism for your keyboard, but we really only made it so that we could make the keyboard thinner. We could make a thinner laptop. Yeah. Like, I don't, I, that's the pessimist in me. I really, I don't think that that's truly their internal voicing, but it, it does worry me. Yeah. It absolutely worries me. And it, it's frustrating because with the exception of the, the reliability problems, I actually quite like this keyboard. I really like this laptop. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I, I didn't think that I would ever like a laptop after they, you know, more or less discontinued the 11-inch MacBook Air. And I, I really, really find myself enjoying this computer. Which computer so do you have? When I, can't, I have the 13-inch Pro. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, it's perfect. Um, yeah, I was just curious if you had the uh, the MacBook One. But no, I... The, no, I've got, I've got the Touch Bar, yeah. Touch Bar 13. Yeah. 
No, I, I and you know, it's a couple people have chimed in about well, then why didn't why'd you give it such a good review? And uh, you know, I didn't run into any stuck keys on any of you know uh, the MacBook, the new MacBooks I reviewed. You know, although I primarily reviewed the the exact model you're talking about, the Touch Bar 13 inch, because that's the one that I would I would buy if I were to to buy one today. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't run into any problems with it. And I, you know, with, I, I could tell within a few days that it was just a, for me, it was just a getting used to thing with the keyboard difference, which is, has always been the case for me when Apple ships a new style keyboard, right? Like you never, never immediately start touching it and feel right. It's always sort of like, no, <laughs> you got to break in, you know? Mm-hmm. The first time I touched it, I thought I was going to hate it. And I didn't, I had an order in for the, for the MacBook Pro. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to do this. I've been using my, uh, my iPad Pro for almost the better part of a year as my like sole <laughs> computer. And I was like, maybe I'll just get another MacBook Air until I, they I don't release something. But no, I, I got used to it. I don't know. I've just never, never, it's, it's totally news to me that uh, last time, like I, I wrote like the only other, the, I have to go all the way back to 2001, uh, to think of an Apple laptop that had a problematic keyboard. And that was, and it was a device I owned. It was the iMac G3 that had the, the 12 inch computer that had like see-through keys. Uh, but it wasn't, even then it wasn't really reliability. It was that they were, they just didn't feel good. They were sort of squishy and, and, yeah, you know, I bought it because I couldn't afford the G4 at the time, which was so gorgeous. That iMac, the 12 inch G4 with the keyboard that went right up to the edge of the screen. Um, mm-hmm. But the other problem with the i I didn't really run into this problem, but it was sort of notorious that that after a year or so, certain people who had the iBook G3, the keyboard would start to smell like the the rubber. <laughs> I swear to God, you can like Google it. The rubber <laughs> under. The I things. don't remember this. This is <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and, and it's just one of those things where Apple, you know, maybe they they didn't know either, you know, right? Because it's like, how do you test what this rubber smells like in a year? Like, how do you artificially yeah. age it by a year? I don't know how that's possible, but, you know, but that's the closest I can think of. But even that, I'd still rather have a keyboard with a funky smell than have a keyboard that had a space bar that didn't work. Yeah. Or or a space bar that worked intermittently. I think that's the, the worst problem is that it goes from not working to working right. to not working. So you never know when you open your laptop whether or not you're going to have a functioning keyboard. Right. And it just, you know, it does not feel like you own a premium device if, like, on a regular basis you have to, like, bang on your R key a couple times really hard to <laughs> unstick it. Like, that seems like the sort of thing you expect from, like, a $300 Chromebook, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. That's to me, is worrisome. Uh, hopefully Apple will get it together. I mean, one thing you know is that there's a, a ton of people within Apple, probably, I would guess, a vast majority of the company, overwhelming majority of the company, who uses MacBooks on a daily basis, either at home or at their desk. So they must be aware yeah. of it. I I assume that we will see a, a tweak to the keyboard with oh. the next generation of MacBook Pros. Like I, I mean, this has been an issue. Casey's article was excellent, but I, I mean, I first heard people talking about this issue. I think it was like Stephen Hackett was talking yeah. about it way back, you know, right after the the Macs were introduced and in like last last December, yeah. and just being like, "Have you guys noticed if your keys are sticking at all? Like my keys are sticking." It's kind of so. This has been a like I have no doubt that the people inside Apple discover this is a problem pretty early on. Um, but what can you do, really? Yeah. Short of saying, we're going to recall all of the MacBook Pros and put in new... Like, that's not going to be possible. Yeah. 
Like they're they're it's basically just a here's your awkward uh, and Jonathan Mann's video is very funny. You know, hold the hold the Mac at 90 degrees and try and spray <laughs> compressed air at 45 degrees. And maybe that'll work. Or if not, go to a genius and get your top case. Dri- like that. It's a pain. Yeah. It's a pain. And that's early adoptership for yeah. you. So hopefully it'll be fixed in the second generation. Yeah, I have faith. And I do, you know, I know for a fact, Apple even talks about it, that they have a dedicated keyboard engineering team. You know, they, they do mm-hmm. take keyboards seriously. So, you know, uh, hopefully those guys are hard at work. Uh, let me thank our last sponsor of the show. It is our good friends at Backblaze. Backblaze offers unlimited cloud backup for Macs and PCs for the absolutely unbelievable price of just $5 a month per PC or Mac. It backs up your documents, your music, your photos, your videos, your drawings, your projects, everything. You can access your data anywhere in the world on the web. Just log into Backblaze and log in with your ID, and then you can get, you know, like get a file or something like that from your backup. Or you can use your phone. They have a great app for uh, for your iPhone, and you can just go there and access any of your files. And uh, you can always just restore one file. Uh, and if disaster strikes, if somebody steals your MacBook something horrible like that happens and you need to get a whole backup of everything, uh, you can get it restored by uh, mail. What do I mean? And you know, like you don't have to sit there and download everything. Uh, you can just go there and you can purchase a hard drive with all your data on it and have it overnighted by FedEx. By tomorrow morning, you'll just have a USB hard drive in your hands with all of your data. And then you can even return the drive to Backblaze and get a full refund for it. So you're not even paying for the drive if you don't need it. That's how fast. And that's, you know, never underestimate the bandwidth of a truck full of hard drives. Um, their customers have had over 20 billion files restored. That's a lot of return documents and memories. And it's gimmick free. There are no gimmicks with Backblaze where they say, well, it's $5 a month, but then you got to pay, uh, you know, extra if you have an external hard drive or something like that. Nope. It's just $5 per month for full backups of your entire system, no matter how much data you have on the, on the computer. Uh, go to backblaze.com slash daring fireball uh, so they know where you came from and they continue to support the show. And you can get a 15-day free trial there, backblaze.com slash daring fireball. Oh, and don't forget about uh, business backup. If you already use Backblaze at home, tell your assistant at work, go to backblaze.com during Fireball and hit the business backup link at the top of the page and you'll find out about their business service with admin tools, et cetera, for business. Uh, my thanks to Backblaze. Uh, I don't have much time left, but the other thing I wanted to talk about, I don't know if you have anything you want to bring up, but I want to talk about my iOS 11 battery life. Seems to me, mm-hmm. seems to me every single year, every year, a uh, new version of iOS hits, and some sizable percentage, not a majority, but some, you know, 10, 15, I don't know, percent of users in, upgrade their old iPhone, which may only be a one-year-old iPhone, and all of a sudden their battery life plummets. Uh, mm. And it's absolutely a real phenomenon. I, I know it. I, I haven't really experienced it. I think... And I've since gone back. I'm not using the iPhone 8 review units anymore. I've since gone back to my personal year-old iPhone 7. Uh, My battery life on a daily basis is just about roughly the same as it was on iOS 10. Uh, You know, I I get into the yellow, as I call it, (laughs) at the end of the day. But that's (laughs) on days when I use my phone a lot, I've always, you know, gotten into low power mode at the end of the day if I don't trickle charge. You know, it's, you know... 
a, a day of heavy use on an iPhone seven, not plus typically, it, you know, that's about what I get one day of battery life. Uh, and that's about where I am with iOS 11, but it does seem, you know, I get emails and I, I don't know if I'm getting, I, it seems like I might be getting more from daring fireball readers this year than typical about them, you know, mm. like literally like a, a year old iPhone seven. And now they have to charge it at lunch because they're running out by like 1230 in the afternoon. I'm curious, <sighs> curious what you've heard from, from my more readers, what, what your sense of this is. So I've definitely heard some complaints about battery life, although mostly coming from folks on older phones, on SEs or older. Um, for me personally, it's really hard to judge because I think I am an atypical iPhone user, which is to say two thirds of the day I end up using my, you know, my iPhone 8 Plus as like a, first of all, it's my primary computer up until about 11 a.m. because I'm walking around the house or doing whatever. So I'm doing a lot of work, like legitimate work on my phone and using it the way that I would a, a laptop. Um, and then on top of that, I often am filming 4K video on it, whether that's at practice or whether that's for iMore. Uh, so I tend to only get like two thirds of a day mm or half of a day off of my off of my phone without plugging it in because of the way I use it. I don't use it like a normal human and I'm I'm okay with that. No. But it makes it really hard to to sort of take a look at what other people are saying about battery life and be like, "Yeah, I've seen that." Uh, because I can't like uh, my my experiences are not going to to line up. Mm. But you're right in that I have seen uh, quite a few people on Twitter responding about battery life and and concerns about battery life. And I'm not sure whether that's whether that's just when you upgrade, you know, you might choose to turn on iCloud backups or whatever, and that that might cause some some interference. Um, it it could just be on it. Like I, I don't know. That's the it's it's kind of uh, mysterious. I like it's kind of obfuscating what what goes on behind the scenes in an in an upgrade, especially when it's you know there there can be upgrades where everybody's battery life takes just a nosedive. But this it's this doesn't seem to be what what's happening yeah. here. It just seems to be like little uh, anecdotal like pe people uh, bits and pieces here and there. And it's and it's not like all the same phone either. Right. It's some people with new phones, some people with old phones. It's just odd. Yeah. And uh, like I had a, a friend, you know, who, who emailed me to ask if I've heard anything because he, he's one of the, he's somebody who's uh, who, who's having to charge his phone at lunch that it's running down that quickly and looked in the battery section of the preferences or the settings where it gives you a list like the blame list of what what apps have been using your battery over the you know, where's your battery life gone over the last 24 hours or the last seven days or whatever. Um, and you know, it was like, um, like messages was at 7% and he was thinking, you know, thinking like, wow, maybe messages is to blame and it was ever. And I, I said to him, I was like, you know, I looked at mine and messages was at 6%, you know, like it seems like six or 7% from messages with background use is actually, you know, normal. Like, uh, there was nothing in there that really looked suspicious, you know, and even like his Facebook was low, you know, like, you know, it, it, I, I don't know, but it's, it, it didn't look like you could tell what it was, where it was going from that blameless. I think though, the more dangerous part is it fuels the widespread conspiracy theory that Apple purposefully makes battery life bad. I, I, I mean, a lot of people believe this on upgrades, right, on upgrades yeah, to, to force people to force people to upgrade to a new machine. Right. 
it, which is silly. It's crazy uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it, it why would you? Wouldn't wouldn't that lead if if your battery life is bad on your year old phone? Wouldn't that be a main reason for you to consider switching to Android? Like, it it, it it's counterintuitive to me. I mean, I know that there are some people who would never, you know, are so so tied to Apple that they're going to do it. But if it literally was the case that you thought the company was sabotaging your device, wouldn't that make you reconsider your allegiances? Um, mm-hmm. Two, personally, I know people who work at Apple. I I don't know a single I. I I don't know a single engineer who I know at Apple who, if they were told, put something in here to make to make you know everything other than the iPhone eight and iPhone ten run slower or, or use more battery life, they they would quit. I, I mean, I swear to God, they would quit. And it, oh yeah, because the people I know at Apple, are, you know, are there to do good work. And guess what? In California, if you're you know good enough to work as an engineer at Apple, you can you be hired. By the time you get to your car after you packed up your office to quit, you'd have job offers in your hand. So it's not like they feel like they, you know, like they're trapped at Apple because they can't get a job somewhere else. But literally, I mean, the people I know who work there would refuse to do it. They'd probably go above their supervisor and report them for, you know, suggesting something so idiotic. Mm -hmm. So it's certainly not purposeful. No, and it actually makes me think about um, the watchOS 4 and the fact that Series 0, like original Apple Watch owners, didn't get uh, one of the features, which is the first time this has happened in a watchOS update, where they didn't get the all of the heart rate tracking right. features that have that have come to watchOS 4. Um, and a lot of Series 0 people are, you know, I, I saw some complaints about that, but then right next to it, I saw some... Ugh, I feel like my watch is slower mm. now that it's on watchOS 4. And I'm like, I just, I wish you would connect these two yeah. things and understand that like the only reason why features get, or at least I would think the primary reason why features get taken away on older devices is not because Apple wants you to upgrade to a new device. Like they might want you right. to, but that's not, that's not the right way of going about it. What they're doing is making sure that the feature performs right. correctly. You right, it's actually you don't want you know. It's the opposite, right? It's they're actually like we're not going to give you this feature that's going to run your battery down. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right, like there's certain photography features that are only in the new ones because all the, they they de- to get the performance Apple needs, they depend upon the new um, digital uh, image. What do you call it? The, the ISP, yeah, the, ISP uh, the, the image signal processor. Yeah, the you know, custom, in other words, the custom, the new the new silicon. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't know. But I, I'm curious. My my best guess as to what what the blame is, and maybe this is why it's a yearly thing, is that they're all a bunch. It's a bunch of edge cases, right? Things that didn't turn mm. up. It's that's why it doesn't affect everybody, and it, it it's the nature of the fact that the new version of iOS has to ship in mid September, come hell or high water, right? Like, mm-hmm. and it's you know, I, I, and so I'm curious whether people out there, I'd love to hear from you if you've had bad battery life with iOS 11.0 and um, uh, the point one update was just a minor bug fix. But like when I, the next like software update to iOS 11 comes out, I'd be very curious to hear how many people have their perform, you know, battery performance issues fixed, because I suspect it's just a whole bunch of bug bugs. And that's the sort of thing that once it's out in the wild and everybody who's opted into sending Apple the diagnostics, Apple can, you know, fix all those bugs thanks to the diagnostics that get sent in. That's my guess. Yeah. 
No, I, I agree. I think it's because it's so widespread on the, or not necessarily widespread, because the device uh, options are so widespread, I, I tend to agree. I think it's a bunch of educations and a bunch of people who are, uh, God, all I want to say is you're using it wrong, but th- that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have one more thing I'd like to talk about very quickly. Is there anything you wanted to bring up? No, right. I mean, I think... Uh, uh, yeah, let's 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 talk another time about Apple Watch apps because yeah. I do have a lot oh, to say about much. that. That's, but another yeah, time. Yeah, that's too deep a topic. <laughs> that's another show. This one's quick. This is quick. Is the question of this was a debate that Jason Snell and I and a couple other people had on Twitter that was pretty interesting last week. Is how is Apple going to distribute their original content, meaning the TV and movies that they're that they're producing? Like the uh, I'm so looking forward to it that they signed a deal with Steven Spielberg to to reboot Amazing, <sighs> Amazing Story, Stories, which was one of my all-time favorite shows from the 80s. Uh, so good. Uh, and basically, I see the options as that they just include them with Apple Music. So you pay for one subscription service. It's called Apple Music, and it includes TV and movies, which seems <laughs> weird. But I think that that's possible. Remember, this is the company that has an app called iTunes that does everything from your movies and TV shows to managing your iPhone software restores up until the last yeah. version. Uh, so <laughs> and then back again right, if you want. Right, and they used to call the the, sh- the the store where you bought the movies was called the iTunes Music Store for a while. Uh, <laughs> it, it's still called of iTunes, course. right? It, uh, so I, it, the company has a history of not being afraid to use a very music-centric brand name for content that includes TV and movies. S- Jason's of the opinion that they're going to sell it separately, that there will be like something called Apple Video or something. I think video is sort of a weird word for that, though, because music is an art form yeah. and video is a technology. So I think it's hard to yeah. come up. Apple Watch. Right. <laughs> Doesn't also right. work. <laughs> <laughs> it's taken. Right. That's, <laughs> that would be good, but it's taken. All right. Um, you know, I I think that, the re, you know, it makes sense. And Apple does love to chart, make money. And so charging for two separate things, you know, is a way to bump up uh, sales, but I think they can just make tons of money just by getting more and more people to sign up for one subscription service, whether it stays named Apple music or they rename it to something else. Uh, and here's why I think it would be hard to get the video because it, it's, it's sort of like the slowly boiling frog. It's like, they're not going to suddenly have this huge library of video content that they can charge $10 a month for, right? Like, let's say they come out with the first good series Apple, Let's say uh, amazing stories comes out next year. Uh, mm-hmm. now they've got one, one good series. Well, how are they going to charge $10 a month when whole, it's just one, one TV show, no matter how good this it is? is. The, the, yeah, this is the debate people were having about CBS All Access right. with Discovery. Right. But, you know, CBS All Access does have other shows. It just happens to be that Discovery is like the only the only one that I think most people of our age group want to watch. Is it true? Is it? Um, is, but with Apple. Is it the case that I have to sign up for that if I want to watch the new Star Trek? There's no other. I can't yeah. I can't buy the new Star Trek on iTunes. Uh, that I don't know, actually, but it, it's entirely possible. I know there was I ran into to one one show that I was really excited about watching and couldn't watch because uh, because I'm in Canada. And then I went to look at it on on iTunes and I couldn't hmm. find it. But I actually don't yeah. know if you can't buy Discovery. I, I think there's a slowly boiling frog problem here where I feel like if they, it, it, you know, when there's only one show, as it is right now with Carpool Karaoke and, and uh, the, the 
the app game show that they're just giving them with Apple music. I feel like even once a good show comes out, you know, you can foresee a future five years from now where Apple is spending $10 billion a year on original content and they have 10 good shows sure. and they have uh, the, their own feature films. Uh, you could, you could, and you can imagine them having something that's worth $10 a month just for that alone. But to get from here to there at, at what point uh, is it worth it? And at the beginning, I feel like they have to bundle it with Apple music but then even at the mm-hmm. point where they have a bunch of shows, what do they do then? Take it away from Apple Music? Yeah. I Honestly, I think the way that they the, – the the easiest way that I can see it happening is doing it as almost like a component service. We're almost getting back to cable here. Um, I think that you're going to have your Apple Music subscription, but you're going to be able to have an add-on basically mm-hmm. for video. Um, kind of like the way that Netflix does for like – regular Netflix and HD or 4K Netflix, right. where it's just like it's a little bit pricier. Right. I see that it's like Apple Music, then Apple Music and Apple Video, right? Where it's just the the, the two of the things together. Um, then there's the, the other part of me that's still wondering if Apple's trying to pull together a way so that we're not paying for 10, $10 a month subscription services. Right. So I don't know about you, but like my, my subscription... Uh, my list of subscriptions is getting a little crazy because yeah. I've got Hulu, I've got CBS, I've got HBO, I've got AMC, I've got God knows. Uh, I've got, yep. you know, and, and just the CW. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and it's like Hulu's commercials are so goddamn annoying that we're, uh, I, I haven't done it yet, but I'm on the cusp of upgrading from the $9.99 plan to the $12.99 plan. The commercial free yeah. or commercial limited. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, oh, and I also have season passes for things like Mr. Robot. In uh, in iTunes, right. so it's a it's a whole it's a whole mass of things. I could I really depending on what you're watching. I, and I really could see them just adding it to Apple Music, period, and then slowly upgrade updating. You know, uh, raising the price of Apple Music, and not even having mm. just keeping the two tiers as single person family, but raising maybe the yeah maybe the baseline goes from nine ninety nine to twelve ninety nine. I mean, Netflix is doing that. Netflix is slowly but surely raising the price of their monthly subscription mm-hmm. I don't know I just don't see it being yeah. a totally separate thing I really I think but I, I could see it but I think it would be such an apple thing to do is to just have all this amazing TV content in a in a service called Apple Music <laughs> I really do <laughs> I do think that that's an apple thing to do like they're they're weird with names yeah although I also look at this as this is the company that a couple years ago, split iTunes into music and video and or well, now, I guess, TV um, and, you know, all of these different little mini apps. Yeah. So depends on which uh, which portion of marketing is, is taking control of this. Yeah, we'll see. Anyway, my thanks to you, Serenity. I got to wrap this up. Let's let's call it a show. Um, yeah, everybody is a good everybody one. Can follow your 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 work at iMore uh, and on on. On the Twitters, you are what's your Twitter name? Setern, S E T T E R N, which is a great follow. Uh, so my thanks to you. Uh, have fun getting married. Thanks. <laughs> uh, here's here's hoping that none of us explode in the next ten days. <laughs> All right. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>